1: Hello, welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, it's been our want in this podcast to occasionally dip into history and a few times over the last year or so, we've gone back as far as the revolutionary decade. Today, we're going to look at history of a more recent vintage in terms of the national question and specifically the campaign of the provisional IRA during the 1980s. A new book, well really a second volume of a book, has recently been published which examines the activities and support for the IRA in the Republic of Ireland during that period. A Broad Church, the Provisional IRA in the Republic of Ireland 1980-89, is written by of O'Faelan and published by Merian Press. It's a fascinating insight into attitudes and support, or lack thereof, in the South during this period, including some major revelations about how people you might think would have had nothing to do with the provisionals were actually lending a hand on the quiet. And joining me now is the author, of O'Foailan. Geroad, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mick. Geroad, a very interesting book, very interesting take on the period because uh, I think a lot of the time there are uh, people who would think there was very minimal support in the Republic for the provisional IRA. And also I think it's fair to say that successive governments appear to have a policy of containing the violence on the northern side of the border. But there was a lot going on down here even if it wasn't that visible um on the surface.
2: Yeah, I, I think yeah you know, I mean what you say your second point absolutely there was a they did succeed in, in containing it, but the the fact that it continued on, you know, even if it was Kind of at a lower level, than in the early nineteen seventies, demonstrates that there was, you know, some level of um, support, or the ability for them to continue doing that, continue the the violence. But um, yeah, I mean, absolutely, the a lot of this wasn't seen, you know, and and that was obviously very deliberate. It was a an illegal organisation, and um, you know, the 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 campaign they were prosecuting was 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 such that it would have been very unwise for people to. Put their head above the parapet, so to speak. I think you know. I mean, what what I say, and I say this in, in kind of the first and the second volume of the book, is that it's sort of a, a known unknown. You know, in terms of the the level of support that was there, and I, I, you know, and I, it's very hard to differentiate. You know, on a spectrum of what what was active support, what was sort of sympathy, and what was toleration, and I think you need to look at them in the round in a way to to understand how the provisional IRA were able to prosecute a campaign at the intensity they did for the, the length of time they did, you know, and given the fact that they, you know, when the ceasefires happened, when the peace process happened, you know, you know arguably they didn't get what they wanted, but they they left and, you know, and they left that the, the troubles on their own terms in a sense, you know, they weren't, um, they didn't leave because they were defeated. So that, you know, that campaign could have continued. Um, and so I think, you know, when you look at that, that support, that sympathy, toleration, you know, what what I show in the book and, and what I learned from the research was that, you know, this this was coming from sort of all sections of society. It wasn't geographically bound. It wasn't bound by sort of class or even political party affiliation, you know. And, and that was, I suppose, one of the, the more surprising things that came out was was the fact that that, you know, who you voted for or who you supported in terms of elections and so on in your area does not mean that, you know, it didn't preclude you from supporting or tolerating, you know, the provisional IRA and people in your community who would have been involved in active republicanism.
1: Yeah. And on that point, Gerard, the type of supporter, like, I suppose, differentiating between support and tolerance or whatever, like, you know, if you're to try and step back for a minute and and, and take it on this level, what we're talking about is a campaign uh, ultimately, or certainly ostensibly, to unify the country by killing people, not to put too fine a point on it. And on one level one might think, well that's a very serious issue and therefore you're either for or against it. And if you're for it you know, you're fairly committed, even to the extent that presumably you would automatically vote for the political party that supports it. But as you say that wasn't the case. It was very much a greyer area which uh, uh, on that level of how serious the issue was, is is um. It's a surprising thing, really, at on one level.
2: Yeah, I I, think, you know, just taking the, the two points there, the, the kind of the support or, or tolerance for violence, you know, what you did see, you know, and, and I think a lot of people would say this, Republicans to this day would say that, you know, the, the kind of person who would almost wink at you, you know, and, and say, well done, if there was a, the death of a British soldier, would also criticise you when civilians were killed. You know, there was there was that ability to kind of keep that duality in people's minds, And, you know, and at the same time, you know, continue supporting the violence, even if civilians died, because you were able, you know, and that's every individual's kind of moral choice, able to accept that or write that off. You did have people, you know, famously, for example, Christy Moore, who supported the Republican movement in, you know, I I don't want to say too strongly about that, but in the 1980s, but then withdrew his support following Ennis Gillen and, you know, the, the bombing there where 11 civilians were killed. I think a lot of people did, you know, Went sort of in waves up and down, um, you know, throughout the conflict, as as different and of atrocities and, and actions like that happened. But the um, it, it is, you know, it is interesting how people who would support the the IRA wouldn't have voted for Sinn Fein. You know, I mean, throughout the nineteen eighties, Sinn Fein's vote never really rose above one to two percent. You know, it was hovered around kind of one point seven to two point four, depending on the elections. Um, you know, and and you know, if I've spoken to people who have. Not them. I've spoken to people, let's say Republicans, who would have been active Republicans, activists, you know, on, on one side or the other on the, the, the political side or, or for the IRA. And they would say to you, yeah, I mean, the person, you know, they voted for Fine Gael because they were Collins people, for example, or because they agreed with, you know, Fianna Fáil's economic policies or because their father did. And, you know, and that was, as I say, like that was the, the really kind of unusual and interesting thing for me was that, you know, they, and, and they were able, I think, a lot of those people, they separated it in their heads. It's like, well, I don't support Sinn Féin. I don't, you know, I don't agree with their policy, Erinua which was their policy, their longstanding, you know, political policy. It's like, I support, you know, the campaign. I support the army, as they called it, you know, I support the IRA. And, you know, and, and in fairness, you know, when you look at the 1970s, for example, most people, I think, uh, who supported the IRA in the South, they didn't, they didn't care about Sinn Féin. You know, they didn't see it as a, as a political and military sort of venture or campaign. You know, they just saw it as the IRA on campaign and and Sinn Féin were almost like an appendage. You know, and it was only kind of in the later part of the 80s um, that they started to become more of a sort of um, an equal
1: partner in that relationship. Yeah, it is is fascinating because, as I understand it, certainly the IRA repeatedly said it, the aim of the whole issue was uh, get the British soldiers out, the government and the South is not the legitimate government. Uh, once you got the Brits out and you had a 32-county uh, republic, as they would see it, it would be a socialist republic, presumably at some point in the future, resulting in democratic elections. And it's nearly as if people viewed what... Uh, it's an awful word to use in the context of killing people, but the romantic notion of... Uh, old Ireland within that context while ignoring the the real politics, so to speak.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean Sinn Fein as they as they sort of, you know, got to that point of being an equal partner, um, that you know, and you you mentioned they talked about a thirty to county socialist republic. And, you know, they, they kind of throughout the twentieth century they used that word socialist kind of in and out, but they only kind of committed to it again in the in the late seventies, and that was really coming from Not just from the North, but, you know, particularly from a sort of um, that that Belfast working class, you know, we call it revolutionary. Now, you can, you know, throughout the kind of analysis of this, people would accuse them of kind of co-opting words that they think would appeal, you know, internally and externally, or whether they were actually committed to that. But, you know, if you look at um, what you're saying about the kind of the recognition of the state, you know, in the South, the Republic of Ireland, and and that was something that really was a, a mainstay of... Sinn Féin and the IRA before the Troubles is, you know, this is an illegitimate state. It's been set up by the British. Only the Irish people as a whole can determine, you know, and so on and, and sovereignty. And you can get, you know, that can get really kind of almost esoteric, you know, and you can argue about, like, what is legitimacy and so on. Um, and I think, you know, when you had a power struggle in, in the IRA and Sinn Féin in the 80s between, I don't want to simplify it now, but it was it was kind of portrayed in the media as a sort of north-south um Fight, you know, the kind of southern old style traditional Republicans versus northern, you know, radical young. Um, what the what the how that was able to be won in a sense by by that sort of um northern led at least faction within the movement is they were able to just say, well, look, none of this matters. You know, this is all just debating nonsense. You know, you don't need to legitimise this by harking back to X or Y. It's like look at what's happening in Derry and Belfast and Tyrone. Like that's your justification. And that that did end up kind of winning the debate. You know, it appealed to people. It's like, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't need to cite, you know, the second doll or this kind of, as I say, almost esoteric notion because we, it, the legitimacy is there as we can see it.
1: Yeah, and just uh, one other thing about the support, um, Gerard right. I get the impression you said that it, it would have ebbed a bit from the 70s, which was sort of, I suppose, to some extent, a reaction because initially the whole thing grew out of the civil rights movement. But and I think anyway, that there would have been a lot of, even though I've been challenging this before, but I would, I would have thought there was certainly a lot of sympathy down here for nationalists in the north as a result of the sectarian state. But the, then when it settled into the long war coming into the 80s, did some of that ebb away as a result?
2: I think it did. You know, I think partly just wariness, you know, um, and, and sickening, you know, I mean, the violence, could uh, you can kind of, you can put up with it for so long and then it's still going on. And, you know, even you can see it in newspaper coverage that the amount of, kind of column inches put to news, you know, a killing in the North or a bombing, it's just getting less and less by the time you get into the 80s. So, and I think, you know, that wasn't just, you know, media led. I think that reflected the, the level of public interest there was in things, unless it spiked and. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of been done to that de- analysis of the hunger strikes, but I think they really did you know, re-galvanise. But, you know, and, and going back to the support, what they did, in a way, is they got people interested who hadn't been interested before. Now, part of that was a younger generation, you know, who hadn't been, who had been kids um, or teenagers in the early 70s. But this this actually ended up causing a lot of tension, particularly in the South, um, not so much in the North, because people were either committed or not before the hunger strikes. But in the South, you got a lot of people who joined. And, you know, I've, I've heard people, let's say older Republicans, would have been involved before the Troubles. And they referred derisively to these people as H-Block Republicans. You know, you, you didn't care before and you only care now. And, and would kind of blame them for this, this the losing of the power struggle because they came in and they didn't have the hard line or, you know, the, the real kind of committed um, dedication that, that you need. They would say, you know, you need to commit 100% to the armed struggle. Um, It's not just about prisoners' rights or, you know, a human rights issue. It's about more than that. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, the, I think the South, the, the hunger strikes really were, I wouldn't say they, they saved the movement. I don't think it was going moribund or anything, but I think it really actually gave it a another boost, you know, after 10 years after Bloody
1: Sunday nearly. OK, and then we turn to some of the activities, and particularly in the 70s, and I'm just researching other things, I've come across a fair bit of this. Uh, armed robberies, and uh, as you outline here, were the kind of the, the, the modus operandi choice in fundraising in the South. And it turned in, as you outlined it, to kidnappings tended to be a, a more preferred one. Why was that?
2: I mean there was a couple of things happening armed robberies the the government and and banks and so on were were just starting to kind of hit on to the fact of what you could do to really reduce that you know things just things like alarms under under desks um screens time locks on safes and then obviously guarded convoys there was a lot of stuff that was happening from about 1979 onwards so that by around 1981 82 it was becoming more and more dangerous to to do it and if you have a a bank robbery or an armed robbery, for example, and you look at this from the newspaper reports, you might have four or five men involved, you know, from the IRA. If you lose those men and they're experienced men, you know, and they get seven years in jail, that's a huge loss in an area, you know, in the South where the numbers involved are a lot less than in the North. The other thing just on, on that is, was, you know, and this is a, a point put by, um, he's a deceased historian, American John Bower Bell, who, who studied the IRA in depth. And he made a really good point, which was, it's much harder to convince someone, you know, let's say who joins the IRA or a revolution organization to, to rob a bank or, you know, rob a shop than it is to actually get involved in violence. Because, you know, it's it's almost like you're, you're, you're carrying out the same risks, but you're doing something that's a little bit, you know, and this is a very kind of, it's a, it's a strange concept to talk about, but you could almost, you know, these people are joining to fight the British and now they're, they're robbing the post office, you know, that might be two villages over. And it's a lot harder to convince people that that's, you know, a worthwhile thing to do. So there was, there was part to that. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if the, um, the first kidnapping, the first one for, for ransom of, of Ben Dunn, you know, famously in, in 1981, I don't know if that was a sort of a, a free run, a solo run by the South Armagh IRA or if it had um, sanctioned from the top, but it allegedly paid huge dividends. And, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of clean thing. They did it. They got away. No one was ever arrested for this or, or charged they they allegedly got a huge amount of money uh, far far more than they would make a multiple let's say 10 times what they would get from an armed robbery so you can just see the sense in that then if we can carry this off again you know taking someone who's who's not a a public figure but has access to you know either through the company or whatever large amounts of money then this is a it's pays far more dividends
1: and did they? they never i i um to put it the way it might be put in terms of those looking for the money, they never reached that level of success thereafter. But was there other kidnappings that perhaps flew under the radar that were quietly paid or anything? Did it turn out to be anyway profitable for them apart from the Ben Dunn one? Not that I'm
2: aware of, but I think what would instead happened was companies went to the IRA and actually paid them in the sense of protection money. You know, you do get there. there is... Um, Allegations made that, that large companies, large multinational companies, had done that, um, and so I think you know that would have obviously been to the benefit of the IRA. Who didn't no risk involved, and suddenly they're they're getting a lot of money.
0: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Specialist to find out if
1: it's right for you, then we come to issues like financing. And a very interesting one altogether here was the one about the sheds that they applied for grants, government grants, and that they used them for storing weaponry of one sort or another. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I mean, the the way this was
2: discovered by the state was, um, you know, it's, it's as you say, there was there was basically farmers who were able to avail of a 33% grant from the Department of Agriculture to build, you know, cattle sheds, um, underground storage, silage pits and so on, um, and, and were using these for, for IRA arm storage. The way that was discovered was following the, the capture of the Exxon, which was a, a ship carrying somewhere between 120 and 150 tons of weapons from Libya to the IRA, and that was that was um, intercepted off the coast of France, it led to a massive arms search in the Republic of Ireland, the largest in the history of the state. And that's when they started finding these, you know, basically empty um, storage places. But, you know, they had things that they shouldn't have had. You know, for example, they had like cooking units underground. They had, you know, lighting systems and so on. The, the difficulty was they were all empty. Now, the, the guards knew that these were arm storage bunkers. They just hadn't been filled yet. Um, but there was no charge you could bring against, you know, a farmer who had one of these. There was no weapons in it. There was nothing. Now, it, it kind of, it meant obviously that that was blown in a sense then that, you know, that farmer and his land could no longer be used by the IRA. But, you know, in a sense, they, they got away with it. Um, and I mentioned in the book, you know, this was something that somebody I spoke to, somebody I interviewed um, had said to me before I had done that research and found those examples that, um, you know, in their local area, they had approached a farmer who wanted to, um to build a shed on his land and they that they being the ira gave this farmer money so he built the shed but they built an underground storage unit underneath it he then applied to, to the bank to get a loan and um, so he was able to then he got this for free you know because the ira paid him for it but he then paid back the loan to the bank you know incrementally as though you would if you had taken out a loan and you know and you had to just get the money to pay it back so there was no suspicion raised so the IRA, you know, made an investment in a sense. They paid for the building of this and in return, they got an underground bunker for arm storage.
1: Yeah, they had some intricate financial operations. All right. I mean, you also mentioned about the attempt of um, the one million pounds worth of counterfeiting mm. in fake 10 pound no is in 83, which I don't know off the top of my head, the equivalent today, would you be talking you'd Be done about up to 10 million euro maybe? In, in terms of today's money, and they nearly got away with that one too.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you know, as as I say in the book, it was pure foolishness. I mean, the person I spoke to, who who told me about this, was i would say still angry to this day about how it was given away. That um, somebody, I mean, it was due to happen on Easter bank holiday weekend in nineteen eighty three, um, all over the state. You know, like really, it was it was going to be washed into the economy all over the state, and the Wednesday beforehand, before the bank holiday weekend, he had paid for a pint in a hotel with one of these notes. Um, now, as I say in the book, there's a kind of a, a, it's not clear what happened then. how the guards, you know, went from just finding, you know, a counterfeit um, note, which I'm sure happens quite regularly to, you know, uncovering this this massive, massive operation by the IRA. But it, it, it does, you know, the, I think there's suspicion that there was an informer involved. Because the, the nature of the way that they then raided a house in, in Shannon and County Clare, and, you know, knew exactly where to look, um, would indicate that that's the case. But, you know, I mean, if this had gone ahead, it would have been, you know, a really, really bad. I mean, the Irish economy was in the doldrums in the early 1980s anyway, but the kind of the public trust and so on in this,
1: it, it would have had a massively negative effect. And the government here, as I say, the, the, their overall strategy was contained at the far side of the border, but they did take some measures, some of them very oppressive measures. In some instances, people would say, but just before touching on that, there's another interesting aspect. And that was the government, of course, being either Fianna Fáil or Fine gael That was the time when Fianna Fáil were able to um, form a government on their own. Yes, despite them seeing themselves as being the bulwark against uh, the IRA and that, you have met people who told you that following, I think it was the 1983 breakout from the maze, that in the, some of the, those escapees... Stayed in the homes of prominent Fianna Fall and Fianna Gael members in the Republic. Yeah,
2: yeah, and um, I mean that's that's something that Brendan McFarlane, you know, very prominent IRA member and from Belfast, you know, he he talked about this quite openly. He said it several times, but it's it's I've heard this, you know, not just from that that breakout, but I've heard this quite a bit um throughout the seventies and eighties, you know, even. Um, it was uh, someone said to me in in East Limerick the one of the IRA u- provisional IRA units in nineteen seventies two of the member two of the people involved would have been you know involved in their local Fianna Fáil common I think this was this is the kind of that duality I talk about where yeah it's just um, yeah I mean people could kind of hold these these two kind of seemingly you know really conflicting views you know it was Fianna Fáil government that brought in the offences against the state Act um, the amendment to it in 1972, you know, which increased the kind of the prison sentence for, for IRA membership and, and the amount of time that you could be detained and interrogated and so on. So it's, yeah, it's it's quite unusual. But, you know, as I say, and, and one thing, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this, but the, the GAA seemingly was was a way, at least a networking opportunity for, for people to kind of get in touch with, um you know, others who might be sympathetic in, in the arrangement of, of safe houses and so on. And that was really a, the the complete spectrum of political parties who would have been involved in the GA.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the GA and uh, early on the GA there was a certain amount of sympathy again one suspects possibly growing out of the, the the civil rights movement initially. But they they decided ostensibly to be completely neutral at one point, but that didn't necessarily follow in terms of as you make a point, um, of what went on at ground level effectively.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean I don't know if you. I might be overplaying this, but the GA, um, certainly then was almost like a microcosm of Irish society. I, I, I you know, I find you oh, know yeah. it's just it, all classes, all, all political um, sort of affiliations and and um, all across the country. I mean, it's just embedded in every part. So I think the GA is actually a good representation of of maybe you know how people thought about this and and it really you know their their attitudes towards it. I think, like you said, you know they were neutral, but by being neutral, then. That kind of it led them to being attacked by both sides. You know, you're not doing enough for us, or you're not condemning this enough.
1: Um, but I think you know you have to look. And a lot of GM members in the north were targeted by the likes of loyalist uh, gunmen and that as well. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and this is it. It's you know, I mean, that particularly that got very bad in the in the nineties. I mean, what did they, they call it? The sporting wing of the IRA, the the GAA. But you know. Like even, even in the 70s and 80s, the British Army had requisitioned GAA pitches, you know, in, in Cross McGlen. They'd requisitioned Casement Park in Belfast at one point. But there was, you know, the UDR in particular, there was, there was a lot of harassment of GAA. You know, and people from Monaghan, Cavan um, and Donegal would experience this, particularly going, you know, crossing the border for matches. So that it was very hard to, um, that, that kind of formed a solid voting block in a sense um in GAA congress and it was very hard to go against that because they were saying well you don't know what it's like for our men for you know
1: our collective membership in the north. Yeah and I think that was a very valid point to make and just a, a, a brief uh, if it's, it's a light kind of interlude talking about the GA when Armagh beat Kerry in 2002 All Ireland final historic win for Armagh and uh Paddy O'Shea was the Kerry manager and Asked about it afterwards, he said, uh, ah, it was about all sorts of stuff, it was about helicopters and everything, meaning, you know, the oppression that had been on particularly Crossman Glen, but I just thought, as a, as a as a losing manager's excuse, I don't know, would it uh, be up there with the greatest that were ever delivered? But anyway, um, just moving over, garage in terms of, no, we have this kind of activity going on at a certain level, and... It's it's not clear the exact level of support, but there's definitely something there, one way or the other. The government, to a greater or lesser extent, and, and, and it ebbed and flowed in terms of the amount of it, they brought in certain repressive measures or they acted repressively in certain instances. Um, in combating this. And arguably, and I think there's no argument about it in some instances, they went beyond what any democratic government has a right to do. But just one or two little incidences uh, that you've related. Tell me about the trial of the suspect who was suspected of armed robbery uh, when there was a discovery of a pre-made confession, something I've come across a few times uh, over the last 30 years or so with with the Gardaí.
2: Yeah, yeah. This this was a case of um, young woman Amanda McShane, and I, I think she was from Tala. Um, I think she she was certainly reported as, as living in West Dublin at the time, but she had been arrested in the aftermath of an armed robbery, and um, it went. It, you know, it did go to trial like that. That this um, pre made confession was actually unveiled by the solicitor who found it in the interrogation cell afterwards, um, and you know. The, the case just collapsed within moments of that, you know, producing this. Um, so what had happened was, you know, she had been interrogated about involvement in this armed robbery, had said nothing incriminating, was still charged, and the guards had, you know, and, and one suspects then that this was not, you know, a singular case, that this had happened, as you say, come across other examples, but they had a confession that they had written that, you know, she had, a, that they were going to use as evidence, and what they were u- doing in the interrogation room was trying to intimidate her into signing this. Um, and so, as I say, the case collapsed within moments of, of her solicitor producing this in court.
1: Yeah, uh, th- I mean, I know I, that you mentioned it. I, I, have, I have heard of that before. That was the case, as you say, a solicitor actually found the physical copy by complete accident. I mean... That is definitely uh, huge questions. And 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 the other issues that arise there, of course, is tolerance that was there for it from government and the impunity in terms of those who carried out that kind of thing. One other incident you touch on, and this is what we had, Don O'Leary, on this podcast a while ago. Don, who does absolutely Trojan work for young people in Cork, in the Cork Life Centre. He was arrested and sentenced to five years. I think it was around... 86. and the and it was on the basis of just having possession of propaganda posters.
2: Yeah, the, I mean, I think a lot of people will have seen posters like this. They would join the IRA posters, and um, they were on sale. They were publicly on sale in the Sinn Féin office in Cork City, as well as other branches of Sinn Féin across the country. And so on the, on the basis of that, on the basis of him having possession of these posters, which were classed as incriminating documents, um, he was put on trial for IRA membership. Now, that offences against the State Act that I mentioned, the 1972 amendment, also meant that um, all it took was the word of a guard superintendent for you, you know, that was evidence. So a guard a superintendent to say, I believe, you know, McClifford is is a member of the IRA. That was evidence. There didn't need to be any physical evidence or anything like that or surveillance. Um, and that was what was put forward as, you know, the supporting evidence along with the posters. And he got five years, reduced to four years on appeal, um, led to a big campaign, you know, released Don Don O'Leary campaign, which was, you know, mostly in um, Cork and Munster. And several other people who were involved in that campaign went to jail for the same thing, possession of incriminating documents. Now, at no time did the guards, you know, try to remove these documents for sale in shops in Sinn Féin offices, which I suppose suits them because it's, by having them there, there's always that sort of sort of Damocles hanging over anyone, you know, who could just be um, charged with IRA membership on the basis of having one. But you know, that was the kind of surreal thing about it was the, the posters remained there; they remained on sale, but people were being charged a year, a year or two later um, for having possession of them as well.
1: I mean, when you think of it in terms of civil liberties, any or anything, it's a, it's a crazy scenario, um, and one where you know as I say, in terms of a democracy and the standards that are to be upheld, the state definitely slipped. I think there's, to put it mildly, there's no doubt about that. And I suppose what does in power, and and some of them who were in the vicinity of power at the time would have suggested they were up against, as they saw it, this powerful force that was very adept Particularly in relation to uh, covering its tracks, very organized, very capable of, for example, intimidating witnesses, and that kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, if you if you have the 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 power of a democracy, you're supposed to keep on the right side of the law yourself and maintain those standards. And because of that, covert and some overt support, it would certainly seem that the government. Um, they let those standards drop
2: yeah I, I think you know i mean you you make a very good point that that's what was going on you know was such that it's very difficult to to combat you know a group like the ira without you know by by kind of adhering to normal democratic standards that you'd expect of a, of a police force um and you know and, and that's something that's you know you could debate i think you know just to have a bit of an interlude as well what, what ended up happening, I think, you know, one of the kind of costs of, of the Troubles in the South was that, that sort of impunity, you know, that guard impunity. And, and kind of anyone who who did anything that was against, you know, the mainstream could be considered subversive. And, and just as a sort of an anecdote about that, you know, I had I had a, a lecturer once, an archaeology lecturer, a very academic minded person, you know, not involved in any sort of activism, but did get involved in... Um, the equivalent of Wood Key in Waterford. So there was a, you know, discovery of Viking artifacts and they were going to be building on it. So there was a protest and there was, you know, archaeologists, kind of eco people involved in this, conservationists. And she would have been in her, I think, 20s at the time and was being followed one day by two men and said it to one of the other people. And that person was an anarchist and was kind of used to being, you know, outside mainstream. And they said, oh, yeah, that's just a special branch. You know, that anyone, you know, anyone was considered subversive and, you know, you would think that that's very odd that an academic would be being followed, you know, because of that. But I think that's, that's the way things ended up developing because there was, you know, was, they they were able to act on impunity against more serious things.
1: Absolutely the case. And I've looked at the Gardaí in various guises, Garod, and there's absolutely no question, but the impunity that was in the gardie that lasted all the way up to the Morris Tribunal and arguably, to some extent, did after that. But in terms of any kind of proper effort being made to examine very credible allegations about what the Gardaí were doing, the government continually avoided it. And as you say, a massive amount of that can be traced back to their attitude as they saw it. As being somehow under siege, and therefore they uh, which was paranoia to a large extent. But as a result, they turned a blind eye to what the guardie were doing, and some of the some within the guardie took the law into their own hands. And as you say, they decided who was subversive and 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 that kind of thing, and uh, a a lot worse than that as well. One other thing, then, Gerard, because this is to the heart of of the what you might call Republican um. Um icono- iconography, and that is funerals, and um, you touch on that as well. It's very interesting funerals, the 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 kind of uh, attitude that was taken by the guardian by extension the government down here. It began to mirror that of the uh, the R U C in the north, in that they didn't want these funerals to be seen as a show of strength.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think you know. Just going back a little bit, you know, if you if you think of. Let's say, you know, talking about icons, but Sean South and Fergal Hanlon, you know, who were killed in, in the 50s in the border campaign, you know, and their funerals were massive. You know, really, um, Sean South was one perhaps the biggest that Limerick had ever seen um, um up until that time, at least. Uh, and, you know, and attended by sort of civic figures and, you know, really, really prominent people in, in civic life and in the GAA um, and in the 70s, this continued, you know, there was, there was several people um, who were members of the IRA or Sinn Féin who were killed or who died in the 70s. And this kind of happened as well. The British then, as you say, they, they made a decision in the, in the 80s that they were no longer going to tolerate this. You know, they were not going to tolerate shows of strength. You know, you, you think of images of Bobby Sands' funeral, for example, and, and shots fired over the coffin and the opportunity for the IRA to demonstrate, you know, we're, we're still here and we, we still have this huge support base. And it does seem, you know, if you just look at it chronologically, it seems like the, the Irish state rode in behind that quite soon afterwards. And um, that there wasn't obviously as many IRA funerals in the south in the 80s. So, you know, that that's a fact. But, you know, it, it, it started happening with um, Seamus McIlwain from um, County Monaghan, rural part of Monaghan, where there was a, a big show of strength on those shots fired over his coffin. The following year then with um Jim Lina who was killed in Lockall, with with several others and in, in the East Tyrone Brigade but Jim Lina was from Monaghan and they attempted to do this again you know shots over the coffin over a tricolour draped coffin and the guards intervened and you know it got, it got really really hot for you know a guard a car was overturned into a ditch with the guards inside a guard had to, was firing his, um, his um, gun over the heads of of people to, to draw, drive them back so that the other guard could be rescued. It did get really, really thick like that. And, um, you know, I think they, you know, they were obviously, they were sending a message out, um, the guards, by, by being heavy on the guns, like, you're not going to do this anymore. It got so bad, particularly in the north, that the IRA were the ones who actually backed down. They they changed their policy. They said, we're no longer going to do shots over coffins because there's too many people being injured at
1: funerals. And there was, and you mentioned Jim Light, and he was a very active IRA man. Um, and at his funeral, there, as you said, there was a lot of that, I think, that, and, and and Jerry Adams, at the gravesite, he was giving an oration and he was giving out, I think, about the, the, the priest in the funeral, suggesting that the priest hadn't even mentioned that Lina had been shot. Uh, it was as if he had died in pneumonia. Uh, and I get the impression that his reason for pointing that out was that he considered Jim Lyna to be a victim, that he was shot. but. Again, it's (laughs) talk about duality. The man was on his way to kill RUC people inside the barracks in Lock All at the time, at the same time before the SAS shot him. And they were wrong to do that too, arguably. But it's it's back again to that whole thing of uh, one side projecting themselves as victims. Um, And that's particularly something you can do a lot easier if you're up against a state. And as well, because the state has to conform to particular standards if it is to be true to its status as a democracy.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I you know, and I think that's that's a really good example. Um, lock all of, you know, during the 80s, there was a lot of British Army shoot to kill operations. You know, they were shooting unarmed members of the IRA. Mm. But that's one where it was a lot more clear cut. You know, they were on their way. Um, and, you know, to this day, there's still a lot of questions on the on the Republican side, about you know how the S.E.S. came to be waiting there, you know in ambush. It's um, a lot of talk of informers, and uh, as I mentioned in the book, it sort of, it, it really drove down activity, um, you know, in East Tyrone for a while. Um, the guards as well, you know, the two most senior guards in in a private conversation with the with the British counterparts referred to it as I think a, a good day's work or something. You know, they uh, now they had their. Lina was a particular hate figure for the guards, you know, him and his family, and there was a lot of clashes between his family and the guards. So I think they they were certainly relieved because a lot of these people who were in Lockall were operating out of Monaghan town and it became a
1: bit of a wild place as a result. And I think, and you touch on this in the book, and I think this is a valid point in terms of people who get caught up in it. Lina was what he was, but his brother Michael, who was not involved to any extent at all, and uh he died in very suspicious circumstances. Uh, and there's a lot of questions over the behavior of the Gardie in relation to that. And, and he was not somebody, but it was nearly just because he happened to be a brother of this man. And again, you're into this scenario whereby the Gardie, uh, taking a particular attitude towards people that were anyway associated with, um, even at a distance with what was going on with the IRA, they, 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 they could be pretty, uh, oppressive about it. But just to finish, Garod, the, um, Overall, and it is a fascinating book. I tell you, I'd ask, I'd suggest to anybody, particularly anybody who, like myself, was around at the time, it gives a fantastic insight to attitudes and what was going on below the surface down here. Overall, Gerard, would you say, in terms of the long view of history, that people will suggest there was more support down here than would officially have been recognised, or would have officially been thought at the time? Or was a certain amount of it. I think that phrase, I don't know who came up with that phrase, the 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 sneaking regarders, mm. was that involved or did it go a bit deeper than that? I think it I think it involved both of them. You know, I think
2: you know, and, and that, that sneaking regarder, I, that might have been Connor Cruz O'Brien, but I think, you know, that would be on the kind of the the real um toleration side of that spectrum as opposed to the active support. But just, you know, like as a final thing to say, like when these books, they both came out of a a PhD I did about 10 years ago. That was about three, four years of of research. And, you know, during that time when I was doing the PhD, you know, I was working when I could. Not a lot of work back (laughs) 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, But, you know, when you're, you're, you're meeting friends, you're traveling around, you're going to doctors and so on. Whenever it came up that I was doing this research, you know, if someone asked, oh, what do you do? And I say, I'm, I'm looking into publicism. And so you would get stories from people. Now, some of them are the kind of the bar stool, you know, type, oh, you know, my uncle, blah, blah, blah. But what you got was just people who felt that they were suddenly on safe ground talking to you and revealing just instances of, oh, you know, and my neighbor, you know, um, he went to jail or, you know, and this person that I know, my, my friend's cousin, you know, he his land was used. And I, like, that's what, I'm, what I found really remarkable was just that once you once they kind of knew that, OK, you're interested in this, you started hearing a lot more stories than I think, you know, and from a, a completely complete range of people, you know, from all sorts of walks of life and ages, um, which just belies the kind of notion that it was, you know, a, a tiny minority um, of people. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that I think if you go out and you're, you're sort of if you're known as, as being very vocally, you know, anti-Republican, of course, you're not going to hear those stories. But, you know, the, just the fact that I was doing this as academic research, I think it opened people and, and they felt more comfortable kind of revealing, you know, and just comments about um, that duality, as I say, you know, where people would say, oh, well, you know, what they did in this, you know, this was an atrocity or this was disgusting, but, and it was often a but then, you know, about, well, but they were, you know, they they had the right idea or, you know, but we didn't live there, so we have no choice. You know, we have no um, we can't judge and so on.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it is very interesting. I think it's I think it's a, a, a duality or a conundrum that will always be there. Um, there's aspects I find very interesting about about, I don't know, just the national psyche and, and and people's psychology in relation to the thing that they can look at it this way. But that's it's part of what we are, part of what where we came from. As I say, I can't recommend it enough. A Broad Church, the Provisional IRA in the Republic of Ireland, Volume 2, 1980-1989, published by Meridian Press. Gerard of Fuelan thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Mick. As I always like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Take it easy, stay in by the wall, and we'll talk to you again next week.